Open up your Bibles to Dr. Luke once again. We now begin chapter 17. And everybody's favorite subject, forgiveness and faith. Particular to the Lord's ministry, the, this, this outline, and I've, I've mentioned this before, my titles aren't my own in this study. I, I refer to a lot of different harmonies of the gospel to keep all of this in chronological order. And I like the titles that A.T. Robertson originally gave these sections of the Lord's ministry, so I cling to those um, unless they defy the Lord's word. And there's been a couple of times, but the title he gives this section is Concerned Officers, Forgiveness, and Faith. And we'll look at the text, and then I think it will make uh, better sense why he includes the concerned officers uh, part. Luke 17, verse 1. Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses or stumbling blocks, or occasions of stumble, will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed, or beware to yourselves. Yourselves here, in this sentence, being the source of the weariness. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. We're going to talk about it in a moment, but this is not the same account that we've talked about before. This is the second time in which the Lord teaches using this example. And it's very, you can see the inflection of the Lord's teaching here and the way that's phrased. Thou shalt Forgive him. He just spent three chapters. We know that's from the breakdown of the, of the translation, but three chapters on what a disciple is. Thou shalt forgive him. Because if we don't die unto selves and bear our cross and follow Jesus, we are not his disciples. He doesn't have to go back and repeat himself. It's on us, the reader, to remember what we've already read, particularly in this set of teaching. And he says, thou shalt forgive Thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles, in response to this, said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, By and by, when he is come from the field, Go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink. A couple of things here before we finish reading our text. The phrase by and by in modern English means in a remote future, but in the English of the king in 1611, this meant immediately. It was used very differently than it is now, so let me read this again. <clears throat> which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him immediately or by and by, when he has come from the field, as soon as the servant has come from one job, which of you will say unto him immediately, go and sit down to meet? And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he think that servant, because, or think, not think, <laughs> T-H-A-N-K, doth he think 
that servant because he did things, the things that were commanded him? I trow, which also means think or suppose, I think or suppose not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to, to do. There's a lot in here. I know it's broken up a lot by, by giving the definitions of these words and trying to add clarity by understanding what these words mean, but this is like the next step of forgiveness, right? This isn't just the idea of forgiveness, but the idea that us actually forgiving is not exceeding our reasonable responsibility, our reasonable service. This is the, the rubber meets the road example he's giving here, is you wouldn't thank that servant for doing what that servant was expected to do as a servant. Make the connection. We should not applaud ourselves for forgiving others for wrongfully using us when it was our responsibility as a student, a, student, a servant, a steward of Christ to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. That's hard, right? That stinks. Because as much as you've heard me say forgiveness, I do like to be real proud of myself when I get that part right. And I sometimes would like to take a break and just say, boy, man, did I forgive today. Surely God would not expect further of me, but I have only done my reasonable service. Forgiveness should be what we do. That phrase, this is what we do, that kind of was born in my life in April when we were at the bedside of Brother Nathaniel Hilly. That's what forgiveness should be. It should be what we do. It should not be what we've done above and beyond, but it should be what we do. The first four verses here sound like a parallel to Matthew 18, verses 9 through 10, as well as verse 21 and 22. However, there's enough variation in the text as well as the application and the location to prove that this is a separate event. Remember the verses in Matthew there in Matthew 18 were recorded as the Lord was speaking in Capernaum. While here in Luke 17, we're still at the Perean part of his ministry. We're not even in the same locale anymore. The same is true of verse 6 of our text compared to Matthew 17, 20. It sounds like a parallel. It sounds like a separate account of the same event, but it's not. This is a different event. Shouldn't be a surprise. The Lord is immutable. His teachings wouldn't change throughout his ministry. And there are times that as a mere teacher or a preacher myself, I've repeated the same truths. This is what he's doing here. It's given new application because where he's repeating it in his ministry. The previous three chapters, again, as broken down from translation, all one teaching, he was talking to who? And who is he talking to now? Well, let's go look. Luke 15, verse 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And from there he goes into three parables, teaching on discipleship. Luke 16, and he said also unto his disciples. And you can read it in this way. They're also there. The people who were there at the beginning of Luke 15, the publicans and the sinners, and the second verse reveals the Pharisees and scribes were there murmuring too, were still there in Luke 16 when he's also addressing the disciples. And given that context, when we get to Luke 17, in all caps in, in our translation, we see then. Then said he unto his disciples. Now, this may or may not mean the disciples are gone. We want to allow the text to reveal that to us. 
or, or rather that the other people other than the apostles or disciples are gone. The text will tell us if that's the case. But our text reaffirms in verse 5 that the apostles are there. They're at the front of this teaching. They're not just administering to the crowds that he's teaching. He's talking to them here. And that changes the entire context of verses 1 through 10. Because what Jesus is telling them, they have already heard before in Matthew. And what he's telling them now in verse 2 when he talks about these little ones, which is a phrase that that writer we talked about this morning, John, uses a lot when he talks about believers, or more specifically, new believers. That means that phrase in verse 2 is talking about those sinners and those publicans that have been taught what discipleship means. And they have already been scoffed at as their Lord was teaching them. And now the Lord turns to the disciples, to the apostles, and he says, you are to not present offenses to these little ones, to these new believers, to those who are following me for the first time. It'd be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. We, the church, are like the apostles in this chapter. We are charged with preventing ourselves from being a stumbling block to these little ones, to these new believers. A lot of commentators like to say verse 2 is also talking about young people. I can't dispute that, but I mean, the last four chapters, we've not seen young people mentioned a whole lot. So for there suddenly to be a young person here, there is another place in Matthew, I believe, where he is talking specifically about the children that they were preventing coming unto him, and he says, let them come. There he is. But this is not a direct parallel to that. So here he may not be. He's specifically talking about the people he's been talking to for three chapters already. The conversation continues here as he deals with the weight of the responsibility we have as Christians. The first thing he he goes into is that offenses will come. This Greek word for offenses is... I, I usually struggle with pronouncing Greek words, but scandalon is pretty easy, and that's what this one is. It's where we get our English word scandalize, and it originally referred to the stick that tripped a snare. So look at our text again. It is impossible, but that offenses will come. It is impossible that there would not be a snare. More specifically, something to trip the snare that's been set in place. These things must come because there is sin in the world, but there need not come from us. We need not be that scandal on. We need not be the stick that trips the snare. Remember me talking this morning about these messages that we're hearing out of Brother Troy's meeting? You'll probably hear the same thing in Silsby because it is the temperature of the Lord's church right now that we have allowed ourselves to become the scandal the scandalized, the stick that trips the snare. It doesn't say here that he is warning them that they are the snare. He's warning them that they are not perceiving the snares for what they are, and they are tripping the snares. Beloved, if we're holding fast to the things we've been given, if we are exercising discernment as we've been commanded to do, we will be aware of the scandal on. We will be aware of these offenses. Not only that, but we will be able to help and nurse along those little ones that are new to the faith, that they also become aware of the scandal on. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearances of evil. The verse before it, prove all things, hold fast. 
if we do not heed Paul's warning here, then the words of verse 2 from our text are written for us. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. What's the one thing we learn about in verse 10 about the power of faith? If we but had the faith of a mustard seed, we could pluck up a sycamine tree. We could command a tree to be plucked up by its own root, to be undone by itself, and cause for it to be planted in the sea. The same place in which we are to be cast with a millstone about our neck if we are unfaithful. Powerful words. Uh, if you go back in a, into the, the Podbean feed to the beginning of our Genesis study, way, way, way back. I mean, I think I was in Michigan when, when we started the Genesis study. But if you look through the words used in Genesis, the original Hebrew words there for water and sea, and it's always referred to as waste. As a matter of fact, you see us removed from it over and over and over again throughout the Bible. And here, he's talking about us being thrown back into it, cast into it, for being a trip hazard or the stick that trips the snare for new believers, new followers of Christ. Remember the servant from the opening of Luke 16 when it was revealed that he was an unfaithful steward? He says, what shall I do? Remember the words of Jacob's, uh, of Jacob's sons that come back with their money in their bag? What has God done unto us? This is a question we must ask. What shall we do? Every time we're presented with something like this, we should ask, what shall I do that I not become the scandal on? What shall I do that I not be a trip hazard to my brother, to my sister, to my fellow churches? What should I do? This is that brings us to the next point, taking heed to ourselves. This is what Jesus says right there in the text. Taking heed to ourselves. We must take care not to sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ who are more or less mature in the faith. The church is a body of faith. And we minister to one another by admitting our sins, confessing our sins, and asking for forgiveness, and granting forgiveness to each other. Those words, when Peter brings it up in Matthew, he says, how oft should I forgive my brother? He doesn't say every random person. He says, my brother. How oft should I forgive Charlie if he wronged me seven times in a day? When is enough enough? Jesus says you keep on forgiving him if he's repented and said, forgive me, forgive him. That was the example spoken of Christ. The example illustrated of Christ was the forgiveness of all the elect of God and they did not ask for it. This great example superseded our expectations by granting forgiveness to those that were at enmity against him. Ephesians chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verse 24. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, starting in verse 24. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We understand, of course, that when we read after God is created, it's not God was created 
and then we put on the new man. But rather the new man was created after God's own likeness, after God's own expectations, after God's own will for us. Put that new man on. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let the sun or let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Very similar to what Paul wrote in Thessalonians that we read this morning. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That old question Brother Hilly loves to ask, how do I put off the old man and put on the new? As God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Forgiveness. The same thing we heard this morning. Love. Faith. All these things in tandem make us a new creation through the washed blood of Christ Jesus. Matthew 18, this is the, the, the other event in which we spoke of earlier. Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? We can't jump all over Simon Peter here and say, well, it's all about him. How oft shall I be hurt and keep forgiving? But he's actually earnestly asking here, how shall I forgive? What is the limit to this commandment that you have given us? Is it seven times? We've spoken before. This is way more than they did in the synagogues. But Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. It is not likely that a believer would commit the same sin seven times in one day against one person. But we must be ready to forgive that often. You imagine... If, if I told you that I, or I wouldn't tell you if I did, I imagine. If Charlie told you that I had offended him the same way seven times in one day. Well, Brother O'Neill would probably think Brother Joe prepared himself to continue to hurt him that much. But if I tell you that we are to prepare ourselves to forgive that much, <laughs> that's That's hard. Again, the idea of being a perfected Christian is a very complicated plan, a very complicated thing to achieve. That new man is a perfected Christian, a perfective saint in Christ Jesus, of which probably none of us are even comparable. Could you even imagine that? I mean, if I offended you twice in one day, that would likely be pretty agitating. But how would you describe me doing it five more times? To forgive should be as habitual for Christians as sinning. It should be what we do. Let me say it again. To forgive should be as habitual for Christians as sinning. 
The idea of an habitual offender is precisely what caused the apostles to ask more faith. Point three, faith upgrade requested. That's what the disciples, the apostles, as they're described here, those following and teaching, this is what they asked for. Lord, increase our faith. And beloved, we have not because we ask not. You say, I can't forgive like that. You wouldn't be the first to say it. And Jesus would say, you can't. You haven't the ability to do it because you've never asked for it. How often have we asked revenge on our enemies? How often have we asked for those who have wrongfully hurt us to experience the same hurt or at least enough that they'll leave us alone? But how often have we prayed the Lord would increase our faith that we could forgive them? I don't stand before you as a perfect model, but one gullible enough to confess that he is failing at it. And this is the measure of Christ. This is curious. They're told to forgive at an unnatural frequency. Anybody disagree that seven times a day that the same offender would be an unnatural frequency of forgiveness? They're told to forgive at an unnatural frequency and rather than say, increase our love, rather than in front of these publicans and sinners who are likely still there, rather than say, of course we would do that. Of course we would do that, Lord. Forgiveness, we got this. They say, increase our faith. Do you understand the humility that they're experiencing at this moment? Jesus, who had been teaching likely to the masses around them, is now addressing them and saying, you who would be a stumbling block, the stick, the trip, the snare for any of them are worthy of being cast into the sea with a millstone around your neck. A millstone, a big round rock that we would use to ground grain so that it's useful. No one will survive with that wrapped around their neck plucked into the water. And then he says, he gives them an example of how they might offend one of them. If one of them offends you seven times in a day, you are to forgive them. And the apostles, feeling the weight of what they've just been told, feeling the weight of if we don't do that, the Lord's told us what we're worth. He's told us what it is. Now, we understand He's not saying your salvation will be lost, but He is telling them that is the value of your service to God. Because just a chapter before, He taught them of the unfaithful steward. And He says, this is how you could be a snare, a, a stick that trips a snare under them. And they say, increase our faith. Increase our faith that we would not fail you as a steward. Increase our faith that we would not cause for one of them to stumble. Increase our faith, Lord. That should be our plea. Every time the preacher or the teacher or our brethren say, we got to forgive, the answer should not be, well, I don't like you either. It ought to be, oh Lord, increase our faith. Will you pray with me, brother? I am incapable. And if you've talked to me one-on-one -on -one about forgiveness, believe me, you aren't the example here. I am. And countless others in just the last calendar year that stand in God's pulpits and have confessed they know nothing of forgiveness with their own actions. And it's a multitude, it's not just one. Increase our faith, they say. Forgiveness comes from faith in God's Word. 
the confidence that God will work out the best for everyone involved according to His will. We're merely called to be faithful. What does the unjust steward say? What shall I do? Here, the apostles who are at the feet of Jesus say, increase our faith. They already know what they should do. They know they're not equipped. Increase our faith. Being faithful means showing up. How often do we hear that that's 99% of being a man? Showing up. That's 99% of being a dad. Showing up. They don't tell you all the other stuff. That 1% accumulates a lot of things. But 99% of it is showing up. Being faithful means being consistent. Being faithful takes diligence, intentionality, fortitude. This means we have to be deliberate. No one forgives somebody seven times in a day for the same offense accidentally. And nobody forgives somebody seven times of the same offense as a platitude just to make everybody happy. You might do it three times, but the fourth time, you're going to be like, come here. Let's go talk in the other room, just you and me. And maybe on the fourth time, it's because you want to make sure they understand what they're doing. But on the fifth and sixth time, when they do it again, that becomes the old wood shit. Does it not? Well, sure, none of us would beat one another, Brother David, but we got woodsheds in our mind for people that we have trouble with. And we take them out back and we beat them, beloved. And we beat them and we beat them and we beat them. But Jesus says, forgive. That's not just on the outside. That's not just in front of the other sister churches. That's not just at Bible conferences where other people are watching. That's not even just in your own home as well as those places so that your kids think you forgave them. That means when you are alone with your thoughts, you still see fruit of forgiveness. That is challenging. You get past all those other things. The summer that we've had, I still don't like being in a room by myself. There's one room in particular at the Parsonage that every time I'm in there, I start thinking about all the things we've experienced since May. And I come out of there a little more frustrated because I'm still trying. And I come out of there on my best day saying, Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith. Help me to indeed truly forgive. Give us faith because what you are asking of us is hard. But you've said it. So we must do it. And you've said it, which means it must be possible. It's impossible for man. This is in the same set of chapters, is it not? But all things are possible with God. The Lord responds to this, describing faith again as a mustard seed. If our faith is like the seed, alive and growing, nothing will be impossible, including forgiveness like Jesus forgives. Remember again that a mustard seed is not capable of exercising faith, but planted, it makes room for its roots by displacing whatever obstructs, objects obstruct its growth. It moves it. It gets it out of the way. It functions according to its God-given nature as though it expects God to supply what it needs. Do we? Is this not what discipleship looks like? Which is what Jesus has been teaching? How many of us in here are mustard seeds? Removing hurt, removing guilt, removing prejudice, removing hard shellism, removing all of the unforgiveness and callousness that we have in front of us 
and trusting that God is going to use this for His intended purpose, for the goodness of His will. How many of us, like mustard seed, are just simply moving that out of the way? I forgive you. I forgive you. Because i got to get that out of the way. God needs this soil. God needs this soil. There might be a great need for us at the Tulsa Boys Home. I cannot harbor any more resentment because God might have a big use for me. It's got to go. Now, I don't know how many in here have plucked a sycamine tree or a sycamore tree or an olive tree, whatever it is that the Lord is, in, is truly describing here. Commentators don't agree on what it is. But let's say, for example, one of us feels confident that he could. Can you do it by the roots? I'm sorry. I take a lot of this literally. And when the Lord says to call for this sycamine tree to be plucked up by its own roots, it turns into a cartoon in my head I cannot unsee. By its own roots. If I were to pick up a, a human, I wouldn't pick him up by his foot. That is the heaviest and most awkward way to try and do it. Lord said anything is, is possible for God. It is absolutely impossible for me. The fourth and final point is the life in a day example that he gives us here. The miraculous faith of verse 6. Let me turn back over there because it's been a minute. Luke 17, verse 6. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a, as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto the sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by thy root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him immediately or by and by, when he is come from the field, go and sit down to meat? And will not thou rather, or, 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 and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things thou, that, that were commanded him? I trow not. I think, I suppose not. So likewise, ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. The miraculous faith of verse 6 must be balanced with faithful day-by-day -day ordinary service that may not be exciting. The day-by-day -day faithfulness of recognizing my flesh is weak. In the Old Testament, the, one of the roles of the priest was to get up early, dig out the cold, maybe damp ashes, and get that fire burning hot again. Dads, Adams, You've been charged with keeping your home. You have a responsibility. Oh, but pastor, we do, uh, we do Bible reading every night, Bible study. Our family getting ready to go through Pilgrim's Progress for the first time as a family. We did that late into the night, and those fires were burning red hot, let me tell you. And the next day, my wife ran over a dog and lied about it, and I shot my neighbor. I don't know, but it does you zero good if you don't get those cold ashes from the night before out of the way and burning hot again. Some of us, that looks like a, a devotion. Going into the new year, it's actually a really great time to make that plan. I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year, whatever it might be. Uh, the neighbor over here was talking to us the night of that fellowship that he listens to an audio Bible, and he's read the whole Bible, and I understand it's different to read it and to hear it, but he's way ahead of me. Six times in 2023, he's gone through the entire Bible.
I'm not going to judge you if you want to listen to the Bible or you want to read the Bible. But God will judge you if you don't read it at all. We have a responsibility to make sure that as servants we are ready to serve. We are kindled hot for the Master's use. Made pure that He sees His face and His reflection on us like we talked about this morning. How are we doing at that? Here we see an example of a servant who plows, takes care of the cattle, even cooks. He does each job faithfully so that he might please his master. When we do our jobs, we are still only unprofitable servants. I know that sounds harsh. The word translated unprofitable means without need. In other words, nobody owes him anything. When we do our jobs, when, as he says here, we've done all those things which are commanded of us, we are servants without need. All of our cares are taken into consideration and acted upon as needed, as God sees fit according to his will. We are servants that require nothing. When we are servants, who have done all those things which are commanded of us. Even the rewards we get from the Lord are pure grace. Not things we worked for. This is the distinction. These aren't things we've earned because we did so much. They're grace. Pure grace. If I were running around the room handing out money to everyone, it's grace. I don't have a lot of it. You couldn't do enough to earn my money because I don't have enough to part with. But if I just gave you cash, it was grace in this instance. Even the rewards we get from the Lord are pure grace. He does not owe them to us because we have done our duty. Our greatest desire is to be unprofitable servants in the definition of this word. Servants without need. And if you are born again, you are servants without need. You want for nothing. You might desire some things because of discontentment. Discontentment. But you don't actually need anything. When our Heavenly Father thinks so much of the lilies, thinks so much of the grass, thinks so much of the cattle on the hill, would He leave us in such a despairing famine for the things that we hold most precious? Even for Jacob's household, God made a way. A seemingly most impossible way. And when that same nation in the next book in this Bible, departs from Egypt, it's even more impossible. And God makes a way. He parts water. And the nation of Israel are kicking up dry dirt. They're not stepping in soppy mud water. Dry dirt. He pulls the very water molecules from amongst their feet that they can travel straight through. I know in some context the word unprofitable servants has a very negative connotation. We're called to do more than just time. We're called to also provide love offerings, are we not? We're called to do more than just our reasonable service, but we are struggling to do our reasonable service. We'll get to the above and beyond stuff, but in this portion of the Lord's ministry, we're still dealing with the reasonable stuff. The very least we should do. Or as he says in the text, all those things we are commanded to do. 
Think of that rich man. That certain rich man that came and said, how is it that I might have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what sayest thou the, the scriptures? What sayest thou the teachings that you've come up with? And he recites it all beautifully. And Jesus says, well done. Now go and sell your goods, give it to the poor. Go and get rid of the only obstacles you have left. His reasonable service was to have an understanding of what God requires. That is your reasonable service. An understanding of what God requires. When we start to get this forgiveness piece right, when we start to get love right, don't start patting yourself on the back and introduce a pride problem. Continue faithfully as a steward, as a servant that requires nothing because your heavenly Father has provided all things. God is not obliged by our efforts and service in this life. Again, like we wrapped up last time, he's either sovereign or he's not. He cannot be a sovereign God if he needs us. He can't be a sovereign God if the very accomplishments of his plan are completely dependent on free will of the creation. He is a sovereign God, tinge of all. Tinge of all, a mustard seed. Mm. May the Lord help us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once more for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. We ask, Lord, that you give us a greater respect for the ministry of your Son. Your Son who was incarnated for the very purposes of teaching. If it were just to die on the cross, he could have done that in an afternoon. But you put him here as an example. You put him here as one that we could learn from. One we could truly follow. One that your people, like John, who we considered this morning, were able to actively engage with. Oh, Father, that we would be blown away by the fact that time and time again in this Bible, you've seen fit to engage with man. We are but peons in the creation, peons in the universe. And yet you've seen fit to converse with Abraham. You seem fit to communicate with David. You were instrumental in the book of Esther where your name is never mentioned. Countless psalms praise your faithfulness, your long-suffering, your immutability, your sovereignty. The first church, not just the disciples, but the women as well, were permitted to hear your teaching, to witness your ministry, to go and tell others what they'd seen and what they'd heard and how they felt about it. And even now, as the Holy Spirit gives us utterance in how we should pray, as the angels bear witness to the service and the worship of you in your name, we are not worthy, Father, of all that you have poured out for us. We ask, Father, that we be humble, that we find our place as servants in need of nothing, but servants first and foremost. Help us to take heed that we not be the stick that trips the snare for new believers or old believers, that we not be the stick that trips the snare for our homes. How many broken homes, Father, that we know of that it was through one simple misunderstanding, 
one moment of unfaithfulness, one argument that got out of hand, one expense that never got paid for or covered. And it all balled up into a mess. Help us, Father, if each and every one of us were to act as though we most desperately needed our faith increase, that we not be the stick that trips the snare, how much better would we be? How, more, how much more faithful? What better witnesses might we be? Help me, Father, and the unforgiveness that resides in my heart. As you allow for us to be tested and tried, Father, perhaps we've forgiven four times, five times, maybe. But increase our faith, Father, that the hurt, the resentment, the pain, the lingering memory of distastefulness would depart from us. That as Joseph said when he named his children, you've given us the ability to forget and a bountiful blessing of being fruitful. Help us, Father, in the hours, the days, the weeks, the months ahead, however long it might be till your arrival, that we continue to be steadfast in our learning of you, in our seeking to be more like you, our seeking to be perfected, Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Amen.